Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studios of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, my own private Iowa. Writer, singer, mountain ghost. John Darnell is with us. Welcome. To Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. MurmurRadio.com. Download the show. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Love Stitcher. Oh, TuneIn Radio. I love TuneIn Radio. Maybe a little more. I go back and forth. <laughs> ModernSchoolOfFilm.com. Social handles for Murmur at MSF Murmur. Twitter, Instagram, all the requisite social and antisocial handles. Some announcements, some housekeeping. I will be in Sao Paulo in June, June 18th through the 25th, doing one of my day-for-night workshops. Day-for-night because there'll be daytime classes for filmmakers, producers, writers, actors, entrepreneurs, digital mavens, and at night, day-for-night, get it? I will be doing some guest discussions. Really excited to talk to the guests we have lined up for you in Sao Paulo. Then in July, we're doing another day for night workshop. I will be in Vienna, July 16th through the 27th. Same thing. Second verse, same as the first. Craft classes during the day. Actors, writers, producers, artisans, technicians, come one, come all, entrepreneurs, film thinkers. And a night we'll be, we will be doing, I will be doing guest discussions in Vienna, day for night, June in Brazil, July in Austria, murmurradio.com. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Today on the show, John Darneal. John is the Mountain Goats singer-songwriter, but he's also an author. He has two books. His most recent book is Universal Harvester. And today's topic is the hometown art and artist art that is created outside of the major Googleplex cities of the world in the USA, New York, LA, Chicago, abroad, whether it's London or Paris or Berlin or Rome, and hometown artists, artists who choose to create outside of those centers and why. John is someone who 
does that. He lives in Durham, North Carolina right now, and I'll touch upon North Carolina in a moment, one of 2,000 pieces of irony today with John Darnielle. John, there is actually a Wikipedia page called The Places John Darnielle Has Lived. There's also a Google Maps page on the locations, the world locations that John Darnielle and the Mountain Goats have written songs about. And that map has over 250 thumbtacks in it or whatever the, the digital thumbtack equivalent is. We're going to talk to John about that. And that's the thing about John. John lives outside of those major plexes, those city plexes, but he also writes about them. And he also writes about other places, other geographical uh, mapping points. So I want to wrap this around this this notion of what I'm calling hometown art. Beat two is the artist who lives in these non-Googleplex cities. We'll, we'll call him or her the hometown artist. John is someone who has a national reputation through the Mountain Goats, but he also is I want to say local in a pejorative, but to me, he's someone who is also very tied to the area of Durham, North Carolina, the U.S. of A, for those of you not listening in the U.S. Irony 1.0, when I'm not running around the world, it seems, happily, blissfully running around and, and doing work with the modern school film, I do the show Murmur out of... Hillsboro, North Carolina, a really great station, WHUP, and that's where I'm broadcasting today. What I find interesting about doing this here is it's such a cool community, Hillsboro, North Carolina, full of really smart artists, artists who may or may not have national profiles. Is that bittersweet? Is that melancholic? Do artists need large canvases to be considered artists? Do artists need an audience? I would say yes, but how large an audience? How small an audience? And the necessity, the functionality of not living in these larger cities as an artist, what are the drawbacks? What are the advantages? What are the freedoms? What are the limitations? It's not right. It's not correct. And it is an insult to say all artists who live outside major cities are, I want to call them less successful artists. I don't want to call them failed artists. They could be artists who want to apply their craft within a different context, within a different system, certainly. But there is a marriage between the life living outside of the major media and quote-unquote traditional artistic centers that makes sense for these artists. John is someone who I would put in that rubric. I'm someone who would I would put in that rubric. You know, I've lived in New York most of my life. I was born in Flushing Hospital, which is part of Queens, New York, and I'm really a city guy. Uh, but I was raised on Long Island, and I almost didn't say that today. <laughs> this Long Island is its own episode, and I hate to reference it tangentially uh, because it's a whole universe. It's like Sicily is to Italy, Long Island is to New York. But I was raised on Long Island, a small town on Long Island, in the eastern end of Long Island, and that created a certain personal ethos. There were no real artists, per se, in Mattituck in this small town. There were arts and crafts, and there were arts and crafts in most towns. There were people doing their detasseling, doing their crocheting, doing their painting, doing their watercolors, doing their music creation outside of these major metropolitan areas. What is the longing there? Is there longing there? There are decisions that have that have led these artists back to these smaller centers. What are those decisions? 
it's interesting. There's always a national, there's always a new national profile for the, the health of the small town. It seems like in the U.S., citizens are being incentivized to go back to small towns. I was reading an article the other day. There's a town in Nebraska, North Platte, Nebraska, and they're offering young people up to $15,000 in student loan repayment and other forms of grantage to come back to North Platte to work. Uh, Hamilton, Ohio is another town, I think, offering $5,000 against student loans to come back and work. Now, artists are workers. <laughs> Does that disqualify you from these incentives to go back to these towns, these smaller towns? You know, town, what is a town by definition? Town by definition has no mathematical equivalent. There is no rubric for X population X equals a town, population X equals a city, and there are all sorts of variants along these the spectrum. You know, there. When I think of something like Austin, it's it's a city, but it's it's like a big town to me. And that part and parcel is the sitting population seems to have a connectivity that feels very town like. I was just in northern Michigan near the Traverse City area. Traverse City has a growing architectural infrastructural feel, but the inner core feels very small town to me. While the outside is trying to grow in a, in a larger town sort of way, so. It's it's, it's all these really interesting definitions and tags we apply to the places we live. Today's show is not about travel. It's not about movement, even though John Darnielle has moved a lot. It's not his fascination with movement. It's his fascination with other places. Yes, the places John has lived and continues to live, although we don't think he has songs about Durham, North Carolina explicitly. Why do artists choose these other towns? Sometimes it's cost of living. I was in Detroit not too long ago, and, you know, land's going. The artists were there first. They made Detroit, uh, they fortified it aesthetically. It's always been a really cool, beautiful, one of my favorite cities in the U.S. But the artists went there. They did some sort of graphic uh, surgery and created some really beautiful public works of art. Now, you know, the cost of living is changing because the aesthetics are, are changing. So there's a relationship between money and the artist in the small town. John was in Durham at a very interesting time, and Durham is now stretching and clawing its way into new places for better and for worse. Whither the artist, though? Wherefore art thou the artist? Wherefore art thou the artist? I like that. Wherefore art thou the artist in all these growing pains? Not all artists are gainfully employed. I don't know John's uh, economic profile. We don't go into those corners unless the, art, the, unless the guest wants to go into those corners, but you know, there is a reality to when the small town haven for these artists and human beings changes into larger, large, larger forms of sheltering, larger tax shelters, uh, so to say, that may squeeze out the artist. So why does, why, why does the artist choose to stay anywhere? But I'm most curious today with John about why has he chosen these smaller hometowns as his home? It's not his hometown. Now I want to redefine hometown today. Hometown is wherever you think it is. John was born in Bloomington, Indiana. He moved very early. So Bloomington, Indiana is technically his hometown, but today it's more of an emotional feel for a hometown. It's the hometown of one's mind. It's the Brazil. It's the state of mind. Uh, John is is become part of the community here, probably in more of an emotional, vibratory way than a, a public facing way. Um, I love this area. I love Hillsborough, which is about 25, 30 minutes away from where John is. And when I get to do the show, when I get to do Murmur at WHUP, which I'm doing this episode, and it's not because of John, it's just the timing worked out that I'm back in the area. Uh, it's really exciting to me. I love to come to the station. The station is run by really great people. They're really great artists and thinkers, really great musicians who do 
do shows on this platform. And I think of them the same way I think of any artist, national uh, profile notwithstanding. So it's an interesting uh, pretzel, non-pretzel. We want to detangle this pretzel today with John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats. I don't want to say John Darnielle explicitly of the Mountain Goats because he does so much more. Uh, we'll talk to him about his authorship, his writer. He was a writer his writer, his writing. He was a writer probably before anything else as a young child. We'll get all the records straight, so to speak. Today on the show, John Darnielle. Now this. When I die, won't you bury me in the parking lot of the A&P? Blow out the candles and blow out the lamps and light my pyre with my trading stand. I had three bucks, but I needed four to go to heaven and redeem my soul. What happened to two, Mike? I had two bucks, but I needed three to deliver me from the A&P. Bravo, Mike. Bravo. Bellissima. You really make all that up? You know, I used to think I was a really great quarterback in high school. Still think so, too. Can't even bring myself to light a cigarette because I keep thinking I gotta stay in shape. You know what really gets me, though? I mean, here I am, I gotta live in this stinking town, and I gotta read in the newspapers about some hotshot kid, new star of the college team. Every year is gonna be a new one. Every year is never gonna be me. I'm just gonna be Mike. 20 year old Mike. 30 year old Mike. Oh, mean old man, Mike. These college kids out here, they're never going to get old. They're out of shape. Because new ones come along every year, they're going to keep calling us cutters. Them is just a dirty word. Me is just something else I never got a chance to be. Just a song about coming home 
said that we spend our whole childhood trying to leave our hometown and the rest of our lives trying to return. This is an idea that both vexes and fascinates me. It vexes me because I was born in New York but raised in a small town, so I cannot conceive nor concede that I am attempting to return to that small town. While I deal with the vexation, we need someone to deal with the fascination. We need a cartographer. Not so coincidentally, we have an expert cartographer on the show with us today. Additionally, he is a writer, a musician, an author, a singer, and he and I have two things in common. The first I'll reveal now. We've both found ourselves at one point or another in Swedish emergency rooms. I'll reveal the other later. Please welcome to Murmur, Mr. John Darneal. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, man, good to hear your voice. I am pretty good. I will probably start to sound a little nervous and hurried at about the 35-minute line because there's a thing at my older son's school tonight that I want to go to. (laughs) Gotcha. Hey, John, can you hear me okay? You're a little muffled on your end. Can you hear me okay? Sorry, I will. Am I, I... I, oh my God! You just—did you hear me a little better now? Yeah, this is perfect. Is this okay? I mean, this is. So actually, I, I, however, you—you've reminded me of one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons of all time, and I'm not going to do the insufferable thing of describing a New Yorker cartoon. Do it. There's a telephone in the near, at, at, at the at the front of the frame, near your eye, <laughs> yeah. and at the other end of the room, the, the, it's off the hook. It's an old school telephone. At the other end of the room, there's a person just standing in the corner, and the caption is. You'll have to speak louder. I'm nowhere near the phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really adore this cartoon. I, I was uh, I was uh, getting myself a glass of wine and uh, and uh, tilting away from the from the from my face. Um, it's okay. I'm so, too, yeah, yeah. So like I say, <laughs> sorry, go on, man. It's and the other thing about being a cartographer is I can't draw, and I really <laughs> wish I could. You know, especially I play tabletop games sometimes, and one of the things you have to do is draw maps. Yeah. And everybody's game about it. It doesn't have to be a good map, but I always think, man, imagine, imagine sixteenth, seventeenth century cartographers—the sort of, the the, the the incredible art because so much imagination had to go into it, you know. But it also had to look like it didn't come from your imagination. Well, let's draw a different map. Um, you know, you hate quoting uh, New Yorker cartoons. I hate referencing Wikipedia. But apropos, <laughs> there's actually a Wikipedia page on the places John Darnell has lived. I didn't. I stopped counting. Um, have you ever seen that Wikipedia page? No, but I, it's things. It's funny because it does not seem like that many to me. I think I can do them. <laughs> Right. Um, especially if you went to college somewhere other than your home, I think, you know, so I was born in Bloomington, Indiana, lived there for about the first year of my life. Then my parents went out to the West Coast and while they were finding a place to to stay, my dad was going to teach at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So I think we lived briefly in Pismo Beach and then in San Luis Obispo. Uh, then the divorce happened and I was in Milpitas. Then I was back in San Luis Obispo, then Claremont, then uh, Portland. And then Claremont again, and then Norwalk, California, and then Chicago, Grinnell, Colo, Ames, and Durham. 
There's a drinking game in there somewhere, like Six Degrees of John Darniel and, and the map. You know, I was thinking of Indiana, and I don't know if you think about it anymore, but I was thinking of John Mellencamp, if you don't mind, another fellow Hoosier, sure. because I remember you know some of those songs in the early 80s, Pink Houses, Small yeah, Town, sure. Jack and Diane, and you know, thinking about you and leading up to today, thinking about art from other places, you know, like non-LA, non-New yeah. York, non-Chicago. Do you remember those striking any chords with you, those kind of songs? I remember like as a teenager, man, it was a cool idea. You could make art from your small world, to quote Bergman. Um, did that ever like come into your radar at that time? Did that, did those two- so that idea, not specifically with reference to Mellencamp, um, who I saw open for heart when he was Johnny Cougar in the zone, uh, which, was a, which was his pre-John Cougar Mellencamp presentation, right? But, uh, but the thing is, so I grew up on the West Coast, and I think you're onto something there. Because uh, we had to, in that time, receive all music sort of third hand, if you were into sort of post-punk scenes, any, any punk or post-punk scenes. The trajectory was like, it was all from England, you were supposed to sort of be in awe of England, right? <laughs> right? And it would all go to New York first. And if you had friends who had been to New York or gone off to college you would have to hear about how great it was in New York. Early 80s when I was a freshman in high school, right. I would just hear about all these people who would go off to college at Columbia and come back and say, oh my God, you know, there's no culture here on the West Coast. And I would get, I would sort of feel like I imagine people in smaller towns around the world feel when they're told, oh, you can't be a success unless you go to London. Right. You can't be a success unless you go to Stockholm. Right. You can't be a success unless you go to Berlin. All that kind of stuff. And I always felt, you know, that it seems obvious to me, you do not have to live in any big place to experience the same rich life of, of the imagination uh, and, and that everybody that's been available to everybody since at least the printing press and probably before. (laughs) Well, you know, I do want to parse this because I know technology has democratized things. I hate that terminology. It's been used to death. I want to look at the other type of democracy. It's actually the democracy you're touching on. You can have creativity and great ideas anywhere, but there's a black hole. Absolutely. I want to get to the black hole a little bit later because there is a reality piece. And I was thinking a little bit in preparation of this, something Bill Hader, we had on the show, and he said, you know, growing up in Tulsa, there were two things you could do drugs or watch movies or both um, you know when when you were in those towns were you inspired i mean life i don't you know want to relitigate a lot of the life there but i was wondering just as a young artist was art on your map were you thinking of like art as a gateway drug and also were you thinking of art as source like small town as a source material this old idea of write what you know uh we can work backwards yeah. do you believe write what you know and were you knowing and writing during your act one of your life, let's say up till high school? So I have a long spiel about that. I'll, I'll begin by saying I, I've been writing for a very long time, but I didn't get much good at it until my you know mid-20s at the earliest, and I would probably say late 20s. Um, but I was writing a whole while. I think part of why I wasn't very good is I always bristled at being told to write what you know, especially if you're a young, very ambitious writer, which I was when I was 14, I wanted to be a great writer already, you know, and you teachers would say, well, right. What do you know? And you go, I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm a 14 year old. I haven't lived by myself. So I'm going to write stories about adults living in their apartments like everybody else. But the teachers were right. Of course, those stories don't, you have to, in some way be writing what you know. Now, what that means, I don't think that means that you can't write things that take place where you haven't lived. I don't think it means you can't write characters, you know, who, who, who come from different socioeconomic standpoints. I mean, I hope that no, you know, white writers will stop writing, uh, 
people of other uh, races or colors because they feel like they can only write what they know because I think that's I think it's incumbent on white writers to actually diversify the, the, the people in their books, right? I mean, it takes more work. But write what you know, I think, runs a little deeper than that. I think what it means is that, you know, you have an outlook, you, know, you have... You, you have an ideology of some kind. You have, have things that are important to you and things that are less important. And those are the things that you should allow your writing to gravitate toward. You know, you shouldn't try to write space opera if you do not actually have any sympathy for space opera. You know? <laughs> Although the thing is, like, then there's riotously successful authors who put the lie to this, you know, especially like pulp writers, great pulp writers who were writing for the money. They didn't really care. It was like they're good at it, you know. And so I think you can be good at writing something that you know very little about, probably. But I do think if you're trying to do literature, right, being in touch with who you are in some way, where you're coming from, what your ideology is, you know, what uh, what your values are, that's what writing what you know is. And, and, and as you say, you know, Act One of, of your life, not that we're going to go through a, a Gene O'Neill-like act structure here, but um, not that that wouldn't be fun. <laughs> but, act, you know, this Act One, writing was first, you know, a typewriter at seven. And correct any of this, because I... Uh, I think it was six, actually. Okay, um, sorry. I was off. I think it is six or seven <laughs> when I asked for and got a typewriter for my birthday, uh, and my... I think I think my mom gave me one she probably had in storage. I'm not sure. It was an old Royal, very oh. big, heavy, 36 Royal typewriter, which in those days, in the early, mid-70s, nobody wanted those anymore. So yeah. they were they were a dollar, you know. And uh, and they probably still are, actually. It's pretty easy to get a, well, it's a, finding a, the a ribbon. typewriter. It's finding the ribbon that's so, the yeah, bitch. No, yeah, the that's ribbons the... are hard. I have, a, I have a 51 Royal in my office, and the ribbon is, needs replaced. But, um, but yeah, so I sat down and wrote a story called The, uh, the Magic Bugle, like right away, there was some stationery in the house and I just loaded it up and I wrote the story, pet hunting and pecking one at a time. And, uh, and my mom said it to my dad, they weren't married anymore. And, uh, and my dad, uh, in, <laughs> in, in a, a gesture I now recognize as profoundly paternal. Uh, uh, he was teaching ag students at San Luis Obispo, mm-hmm. agriculture students, right. And, uh, pre teaching them freshman composition. And he took my short story and said, my son, seven years old wrote a short story this is the first sentence and he read it which was once a bugle stood in the window of a store that sold brass goods right and he said if you write a sentence as good as that one you've got your c (laughs) (laughs) wow that's setting quite a bar there for you john (laughs) (laughs) that's my boy (laughs) thing is the story ended like all my early stories i mean when i say early i mean running through high school until i stopped writing short stories i had no idea how to end a story Right. Um, and actually, once I figured out how to tell a longer story, the end of Wolf and White Van is sort of a nod to that, that my initial tendency to let the end of the story be some gigantic collapse mm. was actually not a bad instinct. You just have to really set the table for it. You know? Yeah. You know, Eight and a Half was about how Fellini couldn't figure out his ninth movie. That's why it's called Eight and a Half. It's right, literally right, right. his ninth movie. That didn't turn out so badly. Uh, speaking with John Darnielle, I, <laughs> I want to I talk a little bit about that, the early, again, t- just to look at the like first underpinning, or the first like clarion call, hey, I may want to create art. Like late, let's say late 80s, mid to late 80s, you can locate it however you want. I'm wondering, did you ever think I live, like, I love Northern California, but as a kid, everywhere you live sucks. Like, everywhere you live yeah. feels confined. You, you're always more valuable somewhere else, as the Stoics would say. Did you ever think no one's going to, if I ever become an artist, who's going who's gonna to who's gonna have access to it? Who, where, where do I go? No. Here's, the, here's the thing. So the thing you're describing about everybody saying where they're from sucks, <laughs> I am kind of reactionary about how whatever everybody's saying, I, I'm not, I'm not, 
I don't gainsay everything, but especially when I was younger, if people, I got tired of hearing people say how much it sucked in Claremont, right? I would think, you know, Claremont's actually pretty good. We got five colleges. We have, you know, they screen, uh, this is pre-VHS, like they, they screen foreign films every Sunday night at Avery Auditorium in Pitzer, you know, uh, near LA, uh, the weather's delightful, you know, and, uh, and so I would get really, especially when people would go away to someplace and come back and they would say, oh, you know, you bunch of, you bunch of rubes out here don't know how great it is in Kiev or wherever, you know. <laughs> I would get really reactionary about it in my heart. And, I, and in yes. fact, there's a whole series of Mountain Goat songs, the ones that begin with the, the words going, going to. to right? Yeah, going to, of course. Their sole, the sole motivation to writing those songs was to make fun of my friends who would always announced that we're, they were, oh, I'm going to go to Berlin because you people don't really understand culture here, so I have to go to Berlin, you know, really to get the dose of culture that I need and stuff like that. And I would think, no, you know, I mean, I, my first favorite work of art was The Wizard of Oz, and I, I agree with Dorothy Gale that, uh, you know, if you go searching for your heart's desire and you look any further than your own backyard, uh, you need to reconsider, you know, your, I haven't got her exact quote, but, you know, if you go looking for heart's desire, you probably don't need to look any further than your own backyard, and I think that's true. Uh, like the, the fact that people move to New York to become a writer will mystify me forever. We have a lot of books about young, I've got people in their 20s trying to live a creative life in New York. We have a lot of those books, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure many of them are very good. I don't know because I don't want to read any of them, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but I understand that those books are popular. But I think it's much more interesting to me to read something that takes place in Pittsburgh or, uh, you know, or Orlando or, uh, or Iowa, you know, or Minnesota or wherever. If you read Louise Erdrich, she doesn't need a large uh, metropolis to write some of the most affecting, amazing fiction of the past 50 years, right? So, so, uh, so yeah, so I've, I've always had that sense of wherever you are, if you don't see the virtue in it, you that points to a, a defect in yourself. You know, I mean, obviously this isn't true if you're in prison, you know, or or <laughs> in some I'm horrible gonna, historic situation. Yeah, you I'm, I'm going to write that down. But uh, yes, yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but I really believe this is like you know, wherever you live in this world, there is probably sufficient fuel. We have the evidence of enough writers who who didn't you know who, who didn't need to travel to any big metropolis. There's some you know, but among Romans especially, writers would get from the the outlying provinces to Rome, and then they would immediately start writing about how there was nothing of value except the countryside. <laughs> you know, as everything but the girl once sang, in the end, if you take care, you can be happy or unhappy anywhere. That's uh, a good line. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. It's a great song. Uh, One Place is the name of that song, speaking with John Darnielle. Which I want to, record is that on? Uh, it's, uh, well, their acoustic version of that is the best. It's everything but the girl acoustic. One Place is the name of the song. In the end, if you take Wait, care. Everything but the girl or the cowboy junkies? Everything but the girl because acoustic. Because I've been intending to get into the cowboy junkies for years. <laughs> yeah. Like this one of those bands I'm not going to ask why. <laughs> Just because I have, I have the sense that they're better than... They hit the scene with a cover of Sweet Jane, yeah. and it was, in my young and extraordinarily opinionated view, uh, the wrong version of Sweet Jane to be covering. So I never really looked any deeper into them, but they seemed like they were probably pretty cool. But, <laughs> but you know. One, one of the great band names, I think, of all time. I, I want to talk a little bit yes. about, about uh, someone who wrote to you around 1994. Again, correct the record if I'm off a month or a week. Uh, someone wrote to you about how much they liked the Mountain Goats, and this led you on a journey to Iowa. Uh, talk a little bit about that moment and about uh, moving to Iowa and about this fan, who I hope is still a fan because she's your wife, Lily Tree. It's a little different from that. It's not that she wrote to me. It's that we were on a mailing list together, which that really dates this story very nicely. Because uh, <laughs> I was getting fan mail from around the world, 
and it was really exciting to me. And the people would send it to Dennis at Shrimper, and he would forward it to me, or they'd find my address somehow. But there was a mailing list talking about bands from the Inland Empire. It was like all dot music dot inland hyphen empire i think or something like that right and uh and i was having a really bad day one day and somebody i, th- I think i might have gotten in an early internet argument with somebody or something and somebody who i didn't know whether it was a man or woman or or you know a fish or flesh or whatever uh said uh you know made a comment right in support of my position or whatever and it it cheered me and so i wrote to them off list and i said hey this is John. Um, I just really, you really made my day today with that comment. It made, made me feel great. Uh, thanks so much. Right. And she wrote back and, uh, and said, hello, it turned out to be Lily Tree, Right. So we were on the same mailing list and she did know my music, but I would not describe her as, as a fan. Of, mm. I didn't really have enough music to be a fan of at that time. I had this, <laughs> a couple of things. So. Right. Right. No, I'm, I'm glad. I, I was wondering though, at that moment when you guys communed and, and it became more than just pen palage, did you think, now again, you're saying you always stayed a little above the fray in terms of where you live and where you create, but, uh, but Iowa, I'm not to diss Iowa. Oh, I, was, I was excited that she was from Iowa. I'd always wanted to go to these places. Like since I was a young man reading Faulkner, Right. I wanted to go to these places that people don't go to. Yeah. Right. The people, you know, I mean, it, it always those are the places I wanted to see. In Iowa, I barely knew anything about it. You know, and so whenever somebody would say, you know, oh, I'm from Springfield, Illinois, you know, I'd say, oh, my God, where is Springfield, Illinois? Very exciting to me. Places I didn't know anything about. That's still true. If somebody says, oh, I'm from a town in Poland. This has happened a couple of times that we uh, in Poland and in Italy, the mountains got to go to towns I didn't know about. Right. That's exciting to me. Like places, I'm much more interested in the stuff I know nothing about than I am in the stuff I already know about. And uh, like that's where this is always how I've been. I'm a curious person. And uh, and so yeah. So I heard she was from Iowa. I said, oh wow, I've never even been to Iowa. That's really cool. What's that like, right? And like that's a real earnest position for me. That like like I was very interested in that, and I already, as I say, had this sort of indwelling tendency to want to defend the places that people say are boring. Politically, I still do this, you know, when people try to describe, you know, when it looked like Roy Moore was going to win in Alabama, you had all, all kinds of people saying, well, you know, this tells us everything we need to know about the state of Alabama. And it's like, and I've been to Alabama. It's not, you can't make those kinds of generalizations about any place. Mm-hmm. You just can't. They're, mm-hmm. Because they're false is why you can't. Yeah. Right? And when you do so, you tell me more about yourself than you do about the place you're trying to discount. That's always been my position, you know. It's interesting. We get these thumbtacks in the map now through shootings, not to get too dark a turn here. Yeah. You know, I was listening to your song, San Bernardino. No, Bern- I opened that door. <laughs> well, I was listening to San Bernardino today, your song, great song. And again, there's no correlation, Thank but, you. you know, it's interesting how we learn of small towns and, and other towns in maybe darker ways or in less artistic ways. I was thinking about All Hail West Texas because All Hail West Texas 2002 seemed to come out of when you were working in Ames, Iowa, because Iowa had, on right. your map of Iowa, you had a mini map, which had Grinnell, Colo, Ames, um, and All Hail West Nevada. Te- yeah. yeah, Nevada, which is the setting of, of Universal Harvester. Well, Spirit Lake, that's where my wife grew up with Spirit Lake, so I, I also know the North a little bit. Man, your, your wife sounds super cool and spiritual. I mean, I I don't know. You yeah, know. she's the greatest. Well, <laughs> she also had love for Iowa. Although when we left, it was time for us to leave. That that also happens. But you were saying? No, I was saying. No, I, I was saying she should be my next guest. Um, no, what I was saying. <laughs> what I was saying. What I was. Any time. What I was saying is. Um, 
all hail West Texas seemed to be created while you were in Iowa. And I'm the counterweight of that is interesting to me. Where when was when was the light bulb bright enough to say I want to I want to etch a story based in another another part of the the world? Like what? Why didn't it come? Why didn't all hail West Iowa get birthed? Why all hail West um, Texas? Well, because I've always felt that, so. This is the thing I talked about how when I was younger. I had this big resistance to write what you know, right? And like, and I also had this this major resentment of like local bands who do well locally because they are local, you know. Like that 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 is a phenomenon people see where they go, man, everybody's going to see this one band who's actually not that good, but they sort of established themselves as the successful local band, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, right. So people support them. And just as far as you know, as far as writing about writing directly about where you live, that seems very limiting to me. You know, it's like. Uh, I don't know whether that's true anymore for me, right? But that's how it seemed to me then. Um, but the other thing is, when I wrote All Hell West Texas, so I think it's probably two ninety nine two thousand when I'm writing it, right? And I'm working at a children's uh, residential uh, care center. But I've been on tour a lot at this point. I've been I've been touring since ninety five, right? And I remember the first time that uh, I think it was the second tour I did no, the second leg of the big tour I did with Alistair Galbraith in 96, I think we flew to Austin and we played an Austin show. We played a Houston show. I feel like we maybe even played a Dallas show. Um, and then we got in the car and we were heading West, right? Um, uh, us two and Bill Meyer driving us and you leave the big cities of Texas and you drive, Oh, we played Denton. That's right. We played in Denton and we began to drive late at night. Right. And, uh, and about an hour or two after you leave the, the buildings and the lights get more sparse and the sky gets darker, except then it gets brighter because there's a riot of stars overhead, visible constellations, you know, the, the Milky way stuff you don't see in the big towns and, and be, and you're still in Texas and then you drive another couple hours and you're still in Texas and it's the middle of the night and it's utterly beautiful. And you go, Hey Bill, can we pull over just to, just to look up for a minute, you know? And you do, and you realize that there's this huge chunk of country that we call West Texas, but that existed when dinosaurs walked the earth, right? right? Where if you stand in the middle of it, you can really feel like you're in the presence of the Almighty, you know, uh, something ancient and primal and beautiful, and that's sitting there all the time, right? It's like, as we go about, you know, our daily self-possession, this thing is happening every night in this region, right? And I would argue also is happening everywhere else, except the streetlights blotted out but but uh but yeah so i i had this moment you know standing outside the car at like two in the morning after a denton texas show driving as far as we could to split the distance between denton and a new mexico stop uh, albuquerque and uh, you have to do as much driving as you can between stops like that so so yeah so that was the germ of that was the feeling like there's a whole life being lived out here that nobody ever thinks about That's outside amazing. of the people who live here and that's always interesting to me. I mean, I think, you know, so many writers want to write about outcasts, about outsiders and stuff. But my outsiders are the ones that the, that the more successful outsiders like to sort of try and put in boxes. You know? well, one of the pieces you mentioned about Universal Harvester was uh, one of the questions in the book is who someone is and where they're from. I love how you st- yeah. stitch those together. I mean, they're sort of inexorably linked. A couple other thoughts, and then we'll let you go. We're speaking with John Darnell, uh, so graciously giving us his time today. Think about Universal Harvester, okay. set in Iowa, uh, Nevada, don't call me Nevada, uh, Iowa. The video store, it's <laughs> funny, the video store was always a convergence, maybe because I'm a cinema dork from long ago. 
I loved hanging out at the Where video are you store. From, though? Where, I'm, tell me I'm, more about yourself uh, before you. Shit, man. I'm from New York, raised on Long Island, which is yeah. another country. So I don't really come from a small... Well, what, what, what part of Long Island, though? I was fucking afraid you were going to ask me that. North Fork East End, a small town called Mattituck. So I asked this for several reasons, but the first time I went to New York, yeah. I, I, all my life, I, like I told you, like New York exists. I almost went when I was 14. I placed in a literary competition. I was the first person from our class to do so. My teacher was so excited. She'd been trying to get somebody to win that one forever. But then there was a meltdown in my house, so I couldn't go to New York. Right? And then all my friends start going to college, come back, say how incredible it is, right? And then the Mountain Goats happens. And in the summer of 94, a guy who was releasing records um, by me uh, set up four or five shows. And Rachel and me flew to, um, uh, to LaGuardia and then, the, and then went to Dan's house in Port Washington. My best friend was from <laughs> Port Washington. I don't, you know, John Cassavetes is from Port Washington, but go on. I'm sorry. Well, the, but the thing is, like, I was, it, it couldn't have been. Less New when York. When you first go to New York, <laughs> if you're from outside, you totally expect to right. see Manhattan. That's right. what you are conditioned to expect the cinematic Manhattan. Right. And I was in a backyard hearing cicadas for the first time <laughs> in my life, right? And I was like, oh, people have been lying to me about New York. Right. This is incredible. <laughs> well, you know, you, you wanted Martin Scorsese. You got Hal Hartley, New York. You know, Long Island and is. That's, but I wanted. Yeah. I was so. I mean, to this day, yeah. like, when people. Because people run down Long Island a lot, you know. And, uh, I, I noticed. And I'm like, no, I have had nights on Long Island that I would not trade for any night oh, in the man. great cities of this world, you know? I, you know? You know, the thing about Long Island is before we get to the last couple of thoughts here with John Turniel, we don't suffer fools. I don't care how famous you are. Uh, and I love that about it. It's not a brusqueness. Yeah, it's, it's great. There's something about the world, the earth is flat, like emotionally flat. There's something about that tolerance. You know, we'll litigate that some other time. I was thinking about research for Universal Harvester. We had Mike Patton on the show. Mike just did a soundtrack for a score for a film that takes place in Nebraska. He said, I didn't know the first thing about Nebraska, even though I've toured there. What kind of mental homework did you do for Iowa in the 70s and the 90s? Well, you were there in the 90s, but in the 70s, like what kind of mental wallpaper, what kind of influences were you eating up to write about it? So I knew I knew my mother-in-law, Nancy uh, Shivanatai, when she was alive. And she uh, spent most of her life in Iowa. Uh, she grew up in a town called Sibley uh, uh, up north. And I'd been to family reunions there and hung out with her mother there in in Sibley, uh, which is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a couple of hundred people, you know, and most people can't imagine that actually being the confines of your town, you know, but I've been to those towns and spent time, you know, spent weekends in those towns um, and, uh, and longer and, and, uh, and known a lot of people from there. I worked in Iowa and people who I worked with, when you hear them talk about where they're from and where their family is from, they have this habit of tracing the cartography, the geography. And the thing is, I started writing that book, the opening piece, and they're talking about fishing. I was poking gentle fun at the way that Iowan people will will stand around and talk about where, who's from for so long that you want to go, yeah, but what did he do there? Right? What did, what did, did he leave some kind of a mark besides the fact no. that he lived in Urbandale? Right? So, no. But they can get a lot of mileage out of, oh, well, no, he was in Urbandale, but he went up to Sibley for a while to take care of his mom. And then she got better. They didn't expect her to, so he went back to Urbandale for a while. Old job wasn't there, but he got a new one for a very similar firm. And he's still, he's not in the same Urbandale house. He's a different neighborhood now, right? And they can do this for a long period of time, right? And, uh, and, but I realized while I was writing that this is actually a love story, right? This is a way of describing, you know, of keeping your people near to you, right? Which is something that those of us who wind up in the bigger places often fail to do. Yeah. I, and I think it hurts us. I think it really, um, you know, 
placing that value in the internet or wherever, you know, placing that value is something you can keep up without, without coming close, without, without approaching your people and, and saying, Hey, I, I see you're still here in Urbandale. You know, I thought I'd stop by. I think it's important stuff, you know, and I, I'm not putting myself above anybody. I, I have, for one, I don't like to hang out with people generally. So, so I talk a good game on this, but I'm usually by myself. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, but I mean, that's, that was one of the things I realized in Iowa is there's a certain, they split the difference between keeping enough distance between you and your neighbor that he doesn't get in your face all the time and knowing where your neighbor's at and yeah. where he's from and yeah. where he's gone if he leaves and that he'll be back. Yeah. The last beat before we say goodbye um, is, is the other thing you and I have in common. We both spend a lot of time in Durham, North Carolina, US of A. You spend probably close to 300, 365 days a year there. I spent about half a year there. I went to school there about a thousand years ago. Which one? Uh, went, Duke? Yes, I think. that's The records don't show it, but I was there. Uh, they, they don't acknowledge <laughs> me anymore. But um, And I'm actually headed back to Durham in a couple weeks. Um, be that oh, as, no kidding. Yeah, you yeah, say hey. yeah, I totally will. And maybe you and I and Sam Beam, we could start a, like an all-star jamboree. You know, Sam. I've run into Sam's wife at the farmer's market, but I have not seen Sam since he moved here. Well, Sam's in the rival town. Did you know that? Not to, to rat Sam out. Uh, Is he in like Pittsburgh? He's in Sea Hill. He's in Chapel Hill. He's in Chapel Hill area. But it, oh, he's, I, did, I, I thought he was out in the country somewhere. He's, you know, there's a lot of little country cartilages out there. He's near one. You know, I was thinking of artists in small towns. Thought in a question. You know, Durham is an, in, an interesting place. It reminds me a little bit of Portland way back when, and I know you were there. I believe you were there. I don't know if yeah. you, rem, you remember being there. Um, Austin, no, I, do. I was. I don't mean to be mean. No, um, I know. <laughs> Austin as well. I was just in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. This is happening. Artists come into these towns, make them super duper cool. They take advantage of cheap spaces, and then they price everyone out. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying it's a weird phenomenon with artists in small towns. Tell me a little bit about Durham. If you never leave the town, would you be content to be an artist in that town? Would you be content to be an so, artist in Durham? Couple of things. We can run a little long, but I got, I got another 50, I, 15 minutes away. Okay, cool. That's be the question that I can reliably deliver 15 uninterrupted minutes on because I was in Durham in 2003, right? And there was nobody moving to Durham then. And I didn't move here to start any cultural nothing, right? I moved here because it was what we could afford, you know? And, uh, and downtown was, it wasn't empty, but a lot of the buildings were, right? And, uh, and people, if they were moving around here, they moved to Chapel Hill or they moved to Carborough or they moved to Raleigh, which is a whole different world. But, uh, but nobody was moving to Durham. But some development started to happen, I would think, I probably put it about nine or ten years later, 2012, 2013, possibly even a little later than that. It has happened very, very quickly. But the thing is, the part of it that's extremely close to me is, after I wrote Wolf and White Van, I had a child, you know, who in the middle of editing that, uh, uh, when, I was, when I was editing the, the manuscript, my, my first son was rolling around on the floor on the paper as I was <laughs> assembling the parts of it, right? Now I have two kids. You can do a book with one kid in the house, but with two in the house, that's pretty rough, mm. right? If you don't have a live-in helper or something, it's like, it's, there's a lot. And plus you're distracted by them just for yourself because they're delightful, you know? And so, so I got an office. And the office I got was in Golden Belt, which is a 1926 uh, former uh, uh, textile mill. And they used to make the strings that tied the bags on Bull Durham tobacco. That was their main thing. During the wars, they made socks uh, for the troops. And it's a beautiful old building with these like beams that are so fat because the trees that were hewn to, uh, to build them had, were 250 years old. You know, it's a big, fat beams, beautiful old building. And I shared space with uh, the Triangle Literacy Project, which taught young men, entirely young black men who were have, you know, having struggles in their lives, 
would get them GED, right, and get them work experience. It was an amazing project. And with the Center for Employment Training, which we help people who'd been out of the workplace for a while learn business machines and stuff. And I was really proud and happy to be on my floor. But my building was uh, bought by I don't know who, but I do know who it's property managed by. And it's a company from uh, uh, outside of the city, somewhere like Westchester or something like that. And they, what they do is they property manage buildings that are being re purposed, right? And we all got our walking papers uh, one in a row. First, they kicked out the Triangle Literacy Project. Then they kicked out CET. And then they came for me last month. Uh, and they said, hey, you know, we we have a different idea for this building. We'd love to, to see if you could end your lease early. I didn't want to argue with them about it. So I've moved into a building downtown, which is owned by a credit union that's a super great credit union called Self-Help that will be around. They'll own it forever. But I mean, the thing is, like, I have been here and watched the entire process of of there were a bunch of people moving here because they wanted to do cool work, but they couldn't afford to live where all the art galleries were. Mm. So we lived here, right? And then we made cool stuff, and now people have come to to take it. <laughs> so uh, yeah. and there's really nothing we can do about it. And we do enjoy the restaurants that pop up in the wake of it. Nobody can lie about that. It's nice to have more more food, you know, and it's nice to to have like minded people around. But at the same time, there's a there's a building downtown that is going up. It was an empty shoe store when I moved here and we would have, uh, uh, rock shows in there and like potlucks. Right? <laughs> so, and now it's going to be the tallest building in downtown and it blots out the sun. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's like, there's no easy solution for these problems. This is what happens. Like, I know. It's, it's, the only way to stop this from happening is to stop making cool stuff. It's happening. You don't want to do that. It's right? ha- then don't go to Detroit because it's happening there. With all apologies to Jack yeah, White. Yeah, so J- and I The thing is, like, so I know, like, my the my big. I have two giant crush towns in the U.S. that I think, man, if I was single and running around, where would I set up to try and, you know, work harder on my craft and live. And there's Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, right? I just love these towns, right? The beautiful towns. But in Cincinnati, I, last time I was there, just crushing out on how beautiful the architecture is and so many cool bookstores and stuff. And I, uh, and I crossed the street from my hotel. And I saw an empty building where I thought, I wonder if I had an office there. I lived here. I looked in the window of the thing and it was being property managed by the same people who just kicked me out. Right? <laughs> so, you know, in Detroit, Dan Gilbert, owner of the Cavaliers, is actually buying everything there. It's it's becoming pretty, you know, and it's 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 happened. It happened to Pittsburgh a few years ago. It's it, actually, you know, and this Wait, is owner of the Cleveland Cavs. Yeah, Dan Gilbert. He's a big real estate. Why is a guy from? I mean, nothing with with all due respect and love to Cleveland. Why is a guy from Cleveland buying up a bunch of Detroit property? Well, you should buy land because they're not making any more of it. You know that old Mark Twain quote. Uh, yeah, but he should <laughs> buy land in Cleveland. There's plenty of places to support in Cleveland. I was just walking there. A month and a half ago, and there's a, like, I saw a bunch of empty buildings where I was like, oh, if I lived here, maybe I'd do something in here, you know? Well, LeBron told him to buy in Cleveland. That's why he went to Detroit. Whatever LeBron tells him to do, he does the opposite. Um, you know, Man, uh, where, where, are you a basketball fan? Uh, yeah, I am. I know yeah. a lot of people who hate on LeBron James super hard, and I did when he was doing the thing where he was making you wonder the, what the decision to go to. Taking his I do, talents. I do believe yes. in if, if somebody did you a favor, you know, then it's nice to stick with him for a while. But I don't think you can argue with his presence on the court and also with how he's sort of proven himself as a grown man. Like no, he's a very I, young fella. 
when that stuff was going on. And I just, I love him to pieces. I think he's really cool. I, I do too. I like him more with each year. The pure attrition, the war of attrition that he's yeah. kicked everyone's ass on. And, and, you know, Michael Jordan's a different case study. You can't compare those two. It's a different ball game. It's a different day and age. Uh, speaking of mentality, one yeah. quick question, then I'll let you be a, an adult and, and a, and a law-abiding law father. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about, I do this show out of Hillsboro when I'm not on the go. There's a radio station there, WHUP, and I do sure. this show live there. Being the artist of a town would you make that faustian bargain go back before mountain goats were like a public entity you know were, were right. belong to the rest of the world if i had to say sign this document you could go to cincinnati would you have signed for the smaller canvas of a small town to be a creator or are you happy with the mixing and matching you're able to do does an artist need a bigger canvas to be an artist you know this is actually a complicated question for me because I know. instinctively my from my heart, I want to say it does not matter where you are. It does not matter, right? Uh, you can do this in Iowa. You can do this in, uh, you know, Guelph, Ontario, you know, wherever you like, right? Um, whack, whack but, Philippines. Uh, I love whack, whack Philippines. But anyway, go on. <laughs> I don't know that one. Okay. But, I mean, you could do it in Pattaya in Thailand. You could do it in Kiev. You do it wherever you like. Right. Um, I say that. But I feel that as an artist, I have grown so much since I moved to North Carolina. And I love it here so much. And it's not about friends, because I really am pretty much a hermit. I have friends, but I don't hang out with them. You know, I, I, I keep to myself, and I see them if I play a show or we happen to be at the same place, but I'm really not, I don't go out. So it's not about going to bars. It's not about going to shows. I think you can do it wherever you like, but I think you have to feel some connection. And this is sort of a, a Wendell Berrien kind of feeling, you know, that like, you have to feel that the ground underneath you is where your feet belong, yeah. you know? And yeah. like, that's true for me is like when I got here before, you know, it was 2003 in 2004, you know, there were not a lot of people. You could ask a hundred people who, who John Darnell was and your chances were pretty good of a hundred people going, I have no idea. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> but, but I felt, I felt a connection. I felt yeah. sort of the feeling that this is where I belonged, uh, that I had, that I felt growing up in California, but that passed, you know, it's like a sort of, and I had always wondered what the rest of the world was like. I didn't have a giant wanderlust, but, but so I think, I don't think it's about art communities and I don't think it's about, you know, uh, uh, big commerce opportunities or anything or any of that. You know, I think it's really about if the place where you live, if you feel like it sustains you, and this is mystical stuff, but like there is a conversation you have with the night air. If you live in a place where you feel like you belong, there's a conversation you have with uh, the sunrise, if you happen to be awake at 5.30 or 6 and it happens and you live in a place where you feel that's where you belong, you feel in accord with the world around you in some way. That's how I feel here, right? And I think that's why my work has grown as much as it has since I moved here is that, you know, I guess sort of have this physical connection to the place, you know? And, uh, and I had that in California when I was a kid. You know, I really was deeply in love with California, but that was more like a very aggravated crush. Whereas my feeling for North Carolina is like, I love this place. I would, you know, I don't, I don't believe in defending things with swords or whatever, but, you know, it's like, like th this is a special place. This town, Durham, especially, it, it, it's a special place despite all the gentrification that's going on, despite, you know, uh, uh, the many problems that we have here. It's a special place, and so many of us have experienced that here. We've come to feel this is our home. And, uh, and home is a deep concept, you know. It's a very... It's one to really, really 
really spend some some you know meditating on beads time with you know well then let me revise that quote as we say goodbye it doesn't take your whole life to get back home it takes three or four maybe five decades hey man welcome home i'm glad you found Thank it you. the net when i'm in durham the coffee at coco cinnamon is on me you it, know that they've moved well there's two locations now um there's the downtown uh, oh they still have the old one they still have the old one yeah, the new one is very near my house i can walk there well let, let's go there i forced sam beam to meet me there if i can get that hermit to meet me in public with sunglasses on um maybe there's hope maybe there's hope for you and i being friends man i, I I'm, I'm around if, if you need me i'm here give a holler um just just yeah. text me put, put me in your phone and holler when you're around and if i am here we will meet up and say hey and we'll talk about long island because seriously like I have a long-standing. I had this this long, long-standing threat to write a thousand poems, uh, loosely based on the Ricky Casso event. That is a threat. That's a <laughs> that's a threat against nature. Hey, man! All the, all I the, only ever make it through a couple poems before I get distracted by something else. <laughs> all the best to you and the family. Continued happiness in Durham, and I'll see you when I'm there in a few months, man. I'll definitely ring you up. A real honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Be well, John. Ciao. Take care, man. Peace. In the end, if you take. Be happy or unhappy anywhere So just to put a coda on uh, Ricky Casso, Richard Ricky Casso, he murdered his friend. Uh, they were teenagers at the time. Uh, he murdered his friend, Gary Lowers, in Northport, New York. North, uh, my aunt lived in East Northport. My parents lived in East Northport eventually as well. So I know the Northport, East Northport area. Um, Ricky was arrested and the murder seemed to be drug-induced, to say the least. Um, the, the, he, Ricky claimed it was mescaline. The cops later claimed it was LSD. Does it really matter at that point? Ricky was arrested, and a few days after his arrest, he hung himself in his cell, and his father later committed suicide as well. 
Ah, Long Island. There's actually a really great article called uh, The Devil in Long Island by Ron Rosenbaum. If you want to learn more about or not about Long Island, uh, go uh, to The Devil in Long Island, uh, Ron Rosenbaum, 1993. I think the New York Times published it. It was in the New York Times Magazine, if memory serves. It talks about why Long Island is the way it is. I'm going to read it again because I don't think I... um, I figured it out. And if I figure anything out or if you figure anything out, email me at the show, murmurradio at gmail.com. In the meantime, I want to thank John Darnielle for being with us here today. Murmurradio.com. Download the show. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. The list is growing, friends. <laughs> Social handles. Follow us. Twitter, Instagram, at Murmur. Visit themodernschoolfilm.com for all your modern school of film needs. (laughs) I will be in Sao Paulo in June, June 18th through the 25th, doing a day-for-night workshop, Come One, Come All. Follow me to Vienna, July 16th through the 27th, day-for-night. It's not where you are. It's what you're doing. See ya.